Uh, I'm filling in. So Pastor Rob was supposed to teach the class this morning. He was going to continue giving stuff from his thesis they wrote on the missionary David Brainerd. Um, But because uh, because he's sick, uh, I'm jumping in. I'm actually going to talk a little bit about something um, as far as how we relate to the culture around us, which is kind of what apologetics is involved with. It's how do we bear faithful witness to the surrounding world? How do we share the gospel? How do we testify to the glory of Jesus Christ? How do we do all that in this culture that we're in? And so uh, that's what I'm going to be talking about a couple of theories that way. And so, but this is, uh, this might be a little on the dry side because it wasn't, uh, this is something I wrote a while ago and then I'm working through. And then we will hopefully have a chance for Q&A afterwards. But I'm going to pray and then I'm going to have us read a few texts of scripture. Please pray with me if you will. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that in these next few moments, you would help us to gain a greater understanding of your purposes in Jesus Christ through his rule and reign, the nature of the kingdom that is already and not yet, that has come and is yet to come, and help us, Lord, to gain a greater understanding to know how we ought to relate even to this world that is passing away, and yet one in which we are to be salt and light we are to be light in the darkness. So give us wisdom in all of these things. We ask for your guidance now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm just going to open with a couple of texts I want to read. So if you've got a Bible, there's just going to be three, maybe four passages I'm going to look at. Uh, the first is Psalm 110, verses 1 to 3. Psalm 110, verses 1 to 3. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours." Well, that's certainly a statement of the rule and reign of the Lord, the Lord who says to my Lord, uh, speaking even of the Messiah who will hold the scepter, the scepter of rule over his enemies. Now, let's um, let's go over to the book of Matthew. Let's see if I got this here. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You, that is Christian believers, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. But in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, this is is articulating for us the role of the Christian in society to be then this this salt-like preservative agent in society, to be a light of testimony that shines in the darkness. And as people see then the change in your life, the manner of your life, the, the good works in your life, then they are then to look at those and they point to God, the God who is a source of them, and so then they give glory to God in heaven. So this is then this transformation of individual lives and it actually then has an effect on those who see them, their neighbors, the people around them. Okay, then go over to the Gospel of John. John chapter 18. John chapter 18. 
see if I can get there. John chapter 18, begin in verse 33. So Pilate, this is obviously Jesus uh, just before being crucified, before Pilate. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And this is the key, verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, like so many people would say today, What is truth? Finally, after seeing then that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, Philippians chapter 2, very you know, famous passage, even some would say it's a hymn, although nobody seems to be able to agree on the, on the structure of this so-called hymn. Philippians chapter 2, we'll start in verse 5, Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, and here it is, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now you see there that Every knee is going to acknowledge the lordship of Christ. Every knee will bow. Now, does that mean everybody is going to be saved? No, it means that there are going to be those who are going to be under God's judgment, and they will recognize that it is God who is the one judging them, and it is unavoidable. And they will spend eternity, if if they do not believe in Jesus Christ, in this window of time when they need to repent and believe in Him. If they do not, they will go to hell And they will be under God's judgment for eternity, but they will know that it's God who is the one judging them. They will acknowledge that. They will recognize that, even as they have not submitted to Him when they had the chance, and they will have this judgment meted out to them. And so there is a sense in which then, of course, then the rule and reign of Christ forever and ever will be established. Now, so those are just some texts that kind of get at some of the tensions of trying to understand what is the nature of the kingdom, Christ's kingdom, and how does that relate to us as Christians today in the church, in this society? And so that's what I want to talk a little bit about this morning. And I want to, I want to introduce two categories that theologians have kind of come to to two theories, really, of how then the church, Christian believers, how they relate to, let's call it, the state, government, or, and society. And those two categories, and you'll have to kind of get, you know, you'll have to grab onto these because I'm going to be referring to them. The two categories are, on the one hand, the two kingdoms, 2K for short, or R2K, radical two kingdoms, but 2K on the one hand, and then I'll, do, I'll call the other the transformationalist. That's a mouthful. Transformationalist. So the 2K, the two kingdoms, or the transformationalist camps. And, uh, 
Anyways, you just want to have those in mind. I'm going to talk about these as we go along because we're going to talk about then how we relate to, to society. But part of when I first started looking at this, I had I'd spent a bit of time, uh, this is about uh, maybe eight months ago, I'd been trying to learn about, I'd been reading about uh, the differences between authoritarianism and totalitarianism. So I was doing some study, just historical study. And, and right now, um, I find there's a tendency among people to label everything as tyranny. And yet, we have to understand the choices made by governments that are, by definition, totalitarian. So for example, just watching what's going on in China, many of you know I have a real interest in China, I've been to China, uh, saw the persecuted church in China. What is the Chinese government doing? Well, it's, it's trying to actually be totalitarian. In other words, be total in its control of all of society. But as a Christian, I, I want to learn from history about the ways that Christians suffered under authoritarian regimes through history and then the ways that then they would respond and even resist against these totalitarian ones. And so that's led me to a study about these two prominent Christian political theories. These theories that I've just said, these two categories. So there's the, the two-kingdom doctrine on the one hand, and then it's apparent opposite the transformationalist doctrine. Now, you might be sitting here and thinking, well, okay, already, I'm like, I should have slept in. Like, why am I here? And so I apologize if this is seeming heady, but I'm hoping that it can be practical as we go along because this, I'm kind of working through this. This is material for a different, used in a different way and give this to the elders actually. But I want to go through this because this is actually where a lot of you are kind of at, where you're seeing stuff online, you're seeing things that resonate with your political opinions as a Christian but you're not necessarily sure where the sources are, where this stuff is coming from, and you need to be able to discern the differences between these two. And actually, I'm going to show how complex it is actually to sort through it. But the two kingdoms, the two kingdoms doctrine, prioritizes the idea that under the sovereignty of God, there are roles or vocations which the state and the church inhabit, respectively. So the state... It governs the temporal order of society under common grace. And then the church, it governs the distribution of the gospel. It also governs the orderly discipleship of the saints as they bear witness in this passing world, in transit as we all are, uh, to our, our eternal inheritance. So that's the two kingdoms one. The transformationalist doctrine emphasizes that under the sovereignty of God, the distinction between the vocations of the state and the church are not divided. Instead, the state, that's the government, under common grace, is also held accountable by the church, even as the church is not identical with society. So the state is to be an assistant or servant to the church as it seeks to bear witness to the gospel. But also significantly, to, as the church you know, seeks to live in the world with, a de, with sort of a really detailed consciousness of the lordship of Christ in every detail, in every little bit. So the shorthand of these doctrines, because now that was a mouthful and maybe you're confused already, but the shorthand for these doctrines can be reduced to the names of two, two giants in church history. The one, on the one hand, the two kingdoms is Martin Luther. The transformationalist, on the other hand, is, is the Dutch theologian and politician Abraham Kuyper. So you've got Luther and Kuyper. That's the shorthand way of differentiating. And so sometimes you'll hear then the two kingdoms referred to as a Lutheran view. And sometimes you'll hear this transformationalist view as Kuyper's view or a Kuyperian view. You know, you know how theologians are. You've got to add some suffix onto the end of it, make it sound, oh, it's Kuyperian, you know, it sounds really, really clever. Now, in reform circles, uh, certainly our Presbyterian friends, 
Uh, these two schools of thought are kind of famously or infamously represented by two seminaries bearing the same name. And so if you know this, there is a Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and there's a Westminster Seminary in California. And they represent these two different schools of thought. Philadelphia is more on this transformationalist, Kuyperian view, and Westminster Seminary in California is more on this Lutheran view or two kingdoms, which they would say is a reform view, not necessarily a Lutheran one. I just introduced that to say this is just shorthand, but it doesn't even really capture the differences or the similarities or even the nuances of the positions, but that's what you'll catch online or in books and stuff is this popular way of, of looking at it. Now, a further complication when you reduce these things to Luther or Kuiper in their two approaches, or, or you have, let's, what's the other language? So you got this 2K, two kingdoms, 2K on the one hand, or you'll hear about the Kuiper side, you'll hear every square inch. You know, you've heard the famous quotation from Abraham Kuiper, you know, basically paraphrase that there is not one square inch over which Christ does not say, mine. And so applying the lordship of Christ to every square inch of life. So those are kind of the, the labels. Sometimes, sometimes, you know, kind of pejoratively, like a, kind of a, in a slander, you'll have the two kingdoms view being viewed as a quietism. You know, it's quietistic. It's kind of like, well, we just kind of keep our head down and worry about Jesus and worry about sharing the gospel, but we don't worry about anything else around us. It's very quietistic, and whatever happens, happens. Or on the other hand, the transformationalist one is sometimes connected with, now it's a term thrown around a lot, the term theonomy. You know, theonomy would just be, you know, God's law somehow applied to life, to governance, and whatever. Uh, what I find is then the term theonomy is being used very broadly, sometimes, you know, in ways that I would agree with, sometimes like, I, you know, in a very detailed way that, you know, hardly very few would agree with. So those are kind of then the, the way that these, these labels can kind of descend into caricature. But for those who espouse this two kingdoms view, sometimes they're painted, caricatured as being uninterested in politics. They're sort of Gnostic in their focus. They focus on the spiritual versus, versus the physical. And, and they can be viewed as ultimately unconcerned with the well-being of their neighbors, except in a very narrowly evangelistic sense. So it's basically, I don't really care about my neighbors, just so long as if they believe in Jesus, great. If they don't, well, okay, I'm not, I don't really care about society. I'm, just gonna, I'm going to heaven. I don't really, I'm just going to stay in my lane. That's the caricature. For those with a transformationalist view, sometimes they are viewed as being kind of shoehorned into, into some position where they want to seek to kind of have all of society be just kind of nominal, nominally Christianized, so, so that it doesn't really, you know, it's not as important whether actually they're born again, just so long as they adopt Christian or Judeo-Christian morality. And so you've got all these kind of nominal people in a, in a Christian culture. Nominally Christianizing the ungodly who are still going to hell. Wasting the church's time, its talents, and treasure on social transformation of the world that's passing away. So then the caricature of the Kuyperian view is you're polishing the brass on the Titanic. These people are all going to hell. And you're, you're kind of trying to you know, gussy it all up. But really, all you need to do is share the gospel so either they're going to be saved or not. And that's all that you should be focusing your efforts on. That's a caricature. That's a caricature of that view. Now, like so many things, the caricatures, they make us then retreat into sort of like these windowless warehouses, assuming that all that is to be had is on hand and there is nothing else. And so, so then we, we, we view other people that we differ with in these caricatured ways and we think we've got it all figured out. 
But I think it's really good on these things to challenge our caricatures. And depending on what I said there, you might resonate with one side or the other this morning. But I think we got to challenge these views. So, even for myself. So, for example, I tried to challenge my assumptions about the two kingdoms doctrine, for example. And, and so then, in doing research on this, uh, I found the remarkable testimony of a man named Helmut Thielicke. Helmut Thielicke was a, was a German Lutheran pastor. And I first read about him in a book called An Encounter with Spurgeon. So this was a German Lutheran guy that had gone through World War II, uh, and he, he just talking about the piety that he drew from Charles Spurgeon. If any, I don't know if who's here, but anybody here who's gone to seminary, sometimes even Bible college, one of the things you'll get in your first year, they'll give you a tiny little booklet, and it's called A Little Exercise for Young Theologians. And it's basically to expose your biases when you're studying theology. But it was written by this Helmut Thielicke. So he was a Lutheran pastor in Germany. He witnessed the rise of the Nazis rising to power. And he resisted them in, in many different ways. And then he subsequently watched the entrance of another totalitarian regime from the Soviet Union into East Germany. Now as a Lutheran, Thielicke would naturally be more oriented to a two-kingdoms approach. And he did prioritize the spiritual efforts of the church, including congregational care, training of pastors. And yet he also developed a detailed understanding of church and state. He even drew a distinction between the autocratic tendencies that are in many forms of government and then what was, by definition, totalitarianism. So he really thought through in detail how these differed. Now, according to Thielicke, totalitarianism was an intentional rival to God in demanding the worship of the state in all of life. So although Thielicke could recognize the possibility of the church patiently suffering under autocratic governments, he advocated for godly resistance against the state's totalitarian impulses. In other words, setting up a different religion where the, wor- where the state is worshipped. You know, um, when I was in China, in Beijing, uh, I think it was, I forget what the t- name of the building was, but it was, there was a central main uh, building. It was kind of in the Forbidden City. I forget the name of the building now, but, but there was, you, you could go and line up and go to Chairman Mao's tomb. And it was a place that was designed to be worshipped. It, pl- it was like a temple. And so that's, that's the idea, the state being worshipped. What Thielicke showed me was that someone in the two kingdoms tradition could be very politically engaged. And this provides evidence that there can be righteous resistance of totalitarian regimes, even those that retain vestiges of democratic processes. There are elections in China. They just had, they just had elections, and Xi Jinping got elected again you know, for a lifetime. You know, so he's, uh, Vladimir Putin, he gets elected in all the time. Right? They have elections. So just because there's elections doesn't mean you actually have real democracy. Now, on the transformationalist side, the caricature that they're merely polishing brass on the Titanic, it can't withstand then the example of someone many of you might be familiar with, uh, of an evangelist like Francis Schaeffer. Who, who, just a show of hands, who's heard of Francis Schaeffer? Most, most of a certain age. Let's say that. Not to out anybody as far as being old. Um, Schaefer, along with his wife Edith, they, they shaped this holistic worldview of an intentional living under the Lordship of Christ. And as many of you know, they started then this, this retreat center in the mountains in Switzerland called Labrie. And at Labrie, they let this 
transformationalist approach become a platform for their evangelistic efforts to all of these nomadic hippies that were backpacking across Europe in the 60s. They were all looking for metaphysical answers to the crises that were going on in the 60s. And so Francis Schaeffer advocated for a Christian discipleship that cherished beauty, truth, and goodness in all things. And he did it as a witness to the goodness of God in the land of the living. Psalm 27, 13. So he, that's an example. So here, there's Schaefer, transformationalist approach, but this is also in bearing witness in how they lived. The intention is to share the gospel, to see people saved. Now, there are other caricatures that they, they lose their usefulness in explaining people and positions when we admit that there is diversity in each of these two camps. For example... The transformationalist viewpoint is sometimes labeled as theonomist. It's labeled that way by its detractors. And if you've been following anything in our circles, there's lots of talk about theonomy. Pro-theonomy, against theonomy, theonomy, this, that, and the other. The other one that's just coming out in the last you know, few months is something called Christian nationalism. Well, you know, is that sinister or is it good? Like, what, what is that? Now, the irony is this theonomous label can be put on this transformationalist view by its detractors, but, but that charge of theonomy is generally reserved for theonomists on, let's call it, the political right. They want to transform the institutions of the West with the recovery of Judeo-Christian principles. Now, Christians with politically centrist or, or left-wing views, they might shame those transformationalists as advocating for theocracies akin to sort of a, you know, kind of a, a Christianized caliphate. You know what a caliphate is? Me and the boys were driving in. We were just talking about, well, my youngest son asked, is, is ISIS still around? And, and ISIS established a caliphate. You know, they, they're basically a, a region in which they were applying then the, the law of the Koran to a geographical region. And so then, that's how then some of the transformationalists are viewed as wanting a theocracy that's a Christian caliphate. Or something like the enforced baptism of Constantine's Roman army. If you know the story about Constantine, the vision and his profession of faith, but then his, you know, going to conquer in this sign, the sign of the cross, and then he baptizes his whole army, and of course, they win. And so then that reassures you, we must have done right, you know. It must have worked. Baptism worked. But see, transformationalists exist across the political spectrum, and this is really important, especially if you're sympathetic to that side of the equation. It exists across this political spectrum from right through to left. Some of the heirs, the inheritors of Kuyperian thought in Dutch circles have been active, for example, in labor unions. Now, the labor unions, you know, generally, what side? is? Are they on the right or the left? On the left, generally. So you've got then Kuyperians involved in these labor unions. In Kuyper's homeland in the Netherlands, a high degree of socialism has been integrated into society. In the United States, other transformationalists are advocates for social justice in combating racism through political action and protest. So some of the stuff that we have saw in the last couple years where we saw in Christian circles, evangelicals calling for to, to join in with these so-called social justice movements and things that protests and various things and supporting those they're actually taking the transformationalist kyperian line but on the let's call it on the left or or in one in a different direction so these causes not generally associated with the right but you can find the same thinking there so that's why like i always like as soon as i hear someone wanting to really promote the 
the transformational stuff, I, I always want to ask, well, which, which, which a, a right-wing one or a left-wing one? In Canada, probably the emphasis has more been on the left-wing, actually. Uh, if I talked to some of the folks from a Dutch background, then you would know in the Christian Reformed Church and some of its institutions, some of its schools, it would actually trend towards the left wing, some of the advocacy. I won't get into the details all that, but that's so just to be aware of that. Even among Reformed evangelicals who can cite Kuiper and Luther in their heritage, they can, they can fall outside of the caricatures possibly being self-contradictory. So for example... The Gospel Coalition in the U.S. has published many articles offering a Christian view of X. So here's a Christian view of, you know, I don't know what, like Harry Potter or a Christian view of uh, dating or a Christian view of, you know, any number of things. And that's very transformationalist. See, this is the thing, like Gospel Coalition... It's very transformational. And just to, just to add to that, I just saw it this morning. Uh, Tim Keller, who is one of the guys who started Gospel Coalition, advocating for what's called a neo-Calvinian or neo-Calvinist view, which is Kuiper's view, a transformationalist view, and saying that there's hope in that you know, for the future for evangelicalism. Well, that's transformationalist. And there's lots of guys that would be transformationalists. They don't like Tim Keller. So, so this is kind of how it gets a little strange. But in Gospel Coalition in the U.S., often these articles, they'll go beyond the scope of evangelism, beyond the infrastructure of the gospel in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's going beyond that. Yet as time passes, such editorializing runs the risk of being transformationalist then to the right or to the left, or trying to be in the center, the middle way. In other words, there's, there's really no monolithic view, even though grounding such views from the gospel gives the editorial position then this implied authority, which might not be patently clear to the readers. And I speak with a little bit of experience because I, I'm still on the Gospel Coalition Canada Council, and so these tensions, I see them, I see them all playing out even in in that group. The same problem of mischaracterization can occur with the two kingdoms view. Is everybody following me? I know this might be dry as dust for most of you, and some of you might be like, oh yeah, I love this stuff because I'm really interested in it. Um, Just, I appreciate you bearing with me. It's all, we had to call an audible, so we're just, I'm just jumping in here with, uh, with this old stuff. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, the same problem occurs with this two kingdoms view. Um, some two kingdoms advocates seem to have abdicated a critical engagement with the state and society in their vocations. Instead of staying separate, the spiritual has often accommodated the temporal. Now, what do I mean? So, so there now exists... In many churches, an unspoken accommodation to secular society, especially to the secular elite class. So in the name of evangelism and in the priorities of the spiritual kingdom, these advocates can seem to accept the unthinking assumptions of modernity as state and society dictate. So the trade-off, then, for accepting these assumptions is that churches can still offer, then, a very narrowly circumscribed, individualized salvation message to its attendees. But as David Wells documented, the manner in which the rise of consumerism, pragmatism, affluence, those were adopted by churches as, as, a fav- as favorable for them so long as they could be employed in evangelism. So in other words, we've had a movement since probably at least the 70s, the so-called seeker-sensitive movement, but there's different, there's, it's, it's just different iterations, it's still happening, it's consumeristic. 
So it's saying we're going we're gonna to be as much like the world as possible so long as it gives us an outlet to be able to share the gospel. So this is where in this, this supposed two kingdoms thing, the spiritual aspects of, for the advance of the gospel are compromised by trying to be in the world and be like the world and be influential in the world. But what happens is the church just got more worldly. And if I mention the name David Wells, nobody seems to read him anymore. But you can find he had about five books that documented from the 90s through the early 2000s everything that's going on in the churches today. And so in detail, almost as a theological, sociological study. So, the result of this compromise was the megachurch movement. You had celebrity pastors, we still got them, and you have these marketing methodologies for church growth. And so, uh, in the popular expression of the, of the two kingdoms approach, the rise of a new kind of state that we're seeing now, this technocratic state, it can leave Christians paralyzed then. Because after years and years of avoiding politics, now politics isn't going to avoid you. Everything's political now. You can't escape it. The state now has a pan-optic view with surveillance technology and aims to control all details of a person's life. And if you don't think that's happening just because you're not on Facebook, don't worry, like it's coming for you. It's good that maybe you're staying away from these things, but it's coming for you. Now, if many two kingdoms advocates have been trying to rise above the fray of political fights, even with a good desire to focus on their citizenship in heaven, they can then be woefully ill-equipped to address the challenges of jurisdictions and authorities and spheres of sovereignty and even the vocations of the church as it relates to the state. You're just out of practice, not thinking through these things. Now the complexity of the issues become illustrated by the lessons of history. If a two kingdoms approach is taken, does it follow that the spiritual kingdom emphasis of the southern U.S. Christians in the 1800s could allow then for their acquiescence in support of slavery. I had a Presbyterian friend of mine. He, said just, just, he, he just commented on the two kingdoms view. He said the two kingdoms view, when you're, all you're focused on the spiritual kingdom, versus, and then there's, there's the physical stuff that's going on, well, you know, that's just whatever our culture is. We just kind of go along with it. Well, he said that, that actually is then the view of, for example, the Southern Presbyterians and Southern Baptists who then supported slavery. Now, on, but on the other hand, if a transformationalist view is taken, are we destined for something like the Troubles in Northern Ireland? Anybody who's Irish knows about the Troubles. Protestant versus Catholic. There is, no, there is no separation of church and state. Everything is all politics all the time, and it's soaked in blood. Or is it, you know, is church merely, as they say in the U.S., the Republican Party at, at prayer? Is that what it is? You've got American friends. Some, some like that. Some don't like that. They like it if it's the Republican Party at prayer. Some don't like it. Or, you've maybe heard in the last, uh, the previous American election, the group, Christ, or no, it's evangelicals for Biden. Okay? Well, okay, that's transformationalist. You know, just like if Christ, evangelicals for Trump or whoever, that's transformationalist. Ulrich Zwingli in the Reformation, he died as a chaplain for mercenaries. He died in battle as a chaplain. Luther, Luther by, his, by his writings and by his advocacy, he stirred up the peasants' revolt 
and also stirred up the nobles to put down the revolt. Calvinists, Calvinists were everywhere during the English Civil War amongst both the roundheads and the cavaliers. Amongst the roundheads were the, the parliamentarians, the, the kind of the, the, the dissenters, the, they were the Presbyterians, the Baptists, the Congregationalists, all those guys. Well, they're all Calvinists. But many of the cavaliers, the, the guys that supported the king, they were Calvinists too. And so in all this, there's a complexity far more than our sloganeering age wishes to admit. This is kind of what I'm trying to get at here because we're all getting, if you're into these things and tracking these things amongst Christian groups, it's easy to get sucked into easy ca- to these simplistic categories and it just is not so. We have to use discernment. Now, others more learned than myself will clarify, will critique, and even possibly debunk my own assessments here. However, I find that in searching for some signal in the midst of all this noise, I'm still helped most of all by a book that was frequently referred to but little read from a number of years ago called What is the Mission of the Church? What is the Mission of the Church by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert? All of the elders here, we all read it. And what's helpful about this is Kevin DeYoung coming from a Dutch background and a Presbyterian background, and Greg Gilbert coming from a Southern Baptist background. Well, DeYoung had seen both the two kingdoms and the transformationalist stuff, both on the right and the left. He had seen it all in his church and denominations. Greg Gilbert, being a Southern Baptist, he sees both kind of the two kingdoms aspect, but also the transformationalist stuff with SBC, which is like its own little political nation if you know anything about SBC politics, Southern Baptist Church politics. The key takeaway from the book is to distinguish what is the mission of the church. Every word matters in that title. What is the mission of the church as church versus what is the mission and missions of individual Christians? There's a difference there. Keeping this distinction clarifies a lot. And when I, f- I get so frustrated with this because people will throw out all kinds of slogans and stuff, but you don't know, are they talking then about individual Christians? Individual Christians being salt and light? Or are they talking about the church as church? The church as this corporate body. So for example, the church as church is where saints gather, are equipped for the work of the ministry, worshiping together corporately, praying together as one, ministering to each other's needs in a covenanted community. Each Christian believer is called to fear the Lord, to glorify God in all things, to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to love their neighbors and even their enemies, to promote mercy and justice, to protect and strengthen the weak, Uh, warning princes and potentates, and all people warning everybody to flee from the wrath to come. That's what every individual Christian should be doing. And as they're doing it, whether they're making dinner, they're changing diapers, they're building a fence, they're changing oil, they're processing something on a computer at work, whatever they're doing, they're offering their work as worship. And they're transforming that work. It is transformation. They're transforming that work as something that glorifies God. Now with this key distinction, did you catch it? There's this transforming witness as we evangelize as individual Christians. But the church as church is committed to equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. The church as church is not then this political action committee. With this key distinction which DeYoung and Gilbert established, we can see that churches, as churches, are places for equipping for evangelism, for godly living, and living under the lordship of Christ in their families, their workplaces, their social contacts, and in the church. Diverse people in diverse walks of life will be equipped to live under that lordship in those areas. They'll bear witness to the truth of God's word in all of those areas. 
they will constantly remind others of the accountability that others have to God, the God who made them, the God who will judge the living and the dead. The witness of those equipped saints will testify to the gospel, to the good news, as well as to the God who offers it. Now, a last possibility, or last possible way of thinking about things is to see then the church as church operating with more of a two kingdoms approach, but equipping its members in a transformationalist way. And that's basically my view. I believe that the church as church has a two kingdoms approach, but individual Christians are to be equipped to be transformationalists. And when, but I'll tell you what, when you get those confused and the church's church is transformationalist and the individuals are two kingdoms, you've got all kinds of problems. I don't, see, I don't hear a whole lot of people talking in these terms. That's why I'm so frustrated by the debate. So the church as church is more of a two kingdoms approach, but equipping the saints to bear witness to the gospel but also to live in a transformationalist way. That's part of sanctification and our bearing witness, salt and light. Salt, uh, so, yes, being salt and light. The question becomes then, how does a local church pastor preach the word of God and make all the diverse applications necessary to think Christianly about the multitude of applications which church members may require for a transformationalist approach to, lo- to their lives? Like, do I, have, do I have enough chops to be able to apply in detail the biblical record to the field of immunology? Or do I have the chops to apply, you know, a biblical framework to particle physics? I mean, I'm just not that smart, really. I'm, I, you know... I like to learn and like, you know, I can look things up on Wikipedia too. But I just don't know. But someone who's in those fields, who's very well equipped with the gospel, will then apply then their understanding of a biblical worldview to all of those things. And, in the, and as they do things, they will change and transform. And even though there's kind of the, there's kind of the old seminary seminary joke on these issues the question is is there a christian way to mow your grass or do you just mow the grass like everybody mows the grass well in one sense yeah you just you you cut the grass it just push the mower and you mow the grass it's not oh well christians do it in a diagonal or you know something like that no but there is a difference though because the christian when they mow their grass they do it to the glory of god so that is a distinction. So, but what happens then is the person who's mowing their grass or engaged in particle physics or immunology or, or teaching or pounding fence posts or working at a computer or whatever they're doing, how they are then bringing their work under the Lordship of Christ is then part of then their testimony before God and also their witness to the watching world. But if I was to presume, as the pastor, and if this church was to presume that we then have then a definitive statement about particle physics or about how to mow your grass, then the tendency would be for us to be plunged into Phariseeism, where then the church as church has then a very detailed you know, Christian view of X, when, when it may not actually be so. And the other problem is, when you have a definitive Christian view of X, that the church says this is the way it is, the problem is, when you're dogmatic about those kind of things that are debated, you don't have enough volume to highlight what should never be debated. Namely, the cores of the Christian faith. God as God, the triune God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the two natures of Christ that we're going to look at later on in the service. These things, justification by faith alone and Christ alone to the glory of God alone, those things, you, can't, you don't have enough volume to highlight those. 
This is where Christians, under the care and accountability of local churches, they can assist each other in taking the time to make applications of God's Word to all aspects of life, to every square inch. Parachurch organizations develop from this pursuit, and they can serve as valuable resources for local churches and their pastors as they seek to equip the saints. Nevertheless, in the mission of the church as church, the hierarchy of the Bible's own priorities must be maintained. The result will be the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will be proclaimed with power so that the key transformative work occurs, which is not transforming all the vocations. It's the key transformative work of a changed heart. People being born from above. That transformation will be evident, you'll see it in people's lives, it'll be evident from the fruitfulness of a changed heart, a transformed heart. And as the life of that person is progressively transformed, their fixation on life beyond the grave will revitalize even their very temporal efforts to honor God with the work of their hands and the word of God on their lips. So that's my view, that's my perspective, and that's what I advocate. And anytime I hear any of these, these debates, I always say, okay, who are we talking about in the two kingdoms aspect and the transformationalist aspect? Because they're both true when applied to the right people and, and right categories. And that's what we want to advocate here. So I'm hoping that if that, this is all new to you, I'm hoping that it at least introduces these categories and this consideration. If you come away knowing two kingdoms for the church, transformationalists for all of life as individuals, and if you see that, then I, then I think that will be beneficial. And if you're, you're kind of knee-deep into this stuff and you maybe have even more detailed questions, uh, I'm happy to answer those. But I'm going to open it up at this point to questions for a little bit here. So, DJ? Yeah. So just to restate the question, um, how, how does the church, the ministry of the church, equip individual, equip individual Christians in such a way that then they're doing those transformations you know, in their lives in a good way as opposed to a bad way? Um, and, and I would just suggest that then the Bible's own priorities are regarding then the overall spiritual health and biblical knowledge and biblical awareness and tested out um, understanding of these things in wisdom. So, I mean, we, we know Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present, think, now think about this, think about this transformational-wise, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So by constantly being equipped, the saints being equipped with the Word of God and having the Bible's own priorities getting sorted and rightly ordered in one's life, then when it comes to then these issues of detail application or convictions or how to sort that out, the testing of wisdom will actually, actually it'll be well-founded. And even if someone, this is what I, I find, is that sometimes even when someone maybe will have a different, different application on something, and we can think about any number of stuff, parenting, uh, how you how you conduct your business, um, you know how you vote, all all manner of stuff. We can have even differences of view on things, but what you'll find is the godly person who is biblically informed, who has all the whole Bible's priorities in view, and who have tested that out in wisdom. You'll see that even if they differ ultimately in 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 than you do. You'll see that, well, they're taking a path of wisdom. And if you put yourself in their shoes, often you can follow that logic 
the, the biblical wisdom logic and actually get to a similar place if you're in their position, which might make all the difference. So that's what I would say is that, and, and this is where churches get off track, churches then think they've got to jump, leap steps and give the answer. Isn't that everybody's temptation? Oh, pastor, you know, I just want you to give me the answer. Just, just tell me what to think. You know, oh, okay, well, and I'll give you a canned answer. And if you want to grow a church of a certain kind, you just give canned answers, and everybody who agrees with your answers, they will come to your church for those canned answers. But that's actually not really equipping people. You want to equip people to then by, by testing, growing in discernment, so that you can discern, well, these priorities apply in this way. Those priorities are less important in this situation. So that's what I would say, DJ, as far as the applications go. And, uh, you know, the Bible does speak to you know, very clear things. So, for example, issues right now regarding uh, so-called gender identity, things like that. Well, the Bible's very clear about binary sexes. So... It's not that, oh, well, I've got to really kind of think through, how do, you know, how do I think about this, like as if it's difficult to think about. No, it's actually extremely clear on those things, and then it's just a matter of obeying God. But then there's going to be other issues, like in particle physics, well, you know, I don't know. The physicist must then look at God, all the priorities of the Bible and then apply how they think through those things. So you had a second one? You, you go ahead, go with your second, and then I'll get one more. Yeah, so just if I can paraphrase, so if, if, if the church as church is to quote-unquote stay in its lane, what happens then if the state doesn't stay in its lane and starts taking to itself more religious characteristics? Well, first off, this is, this is where, even though, even though I'm saying kind of a two kingdoms a, uh, aspect, I don't think it's necessarily staying in this rigid lane, for, for example, because the priorities of the kingdom are such that we speak truth to power. We proclaim, our, like our whole, what's our whole ministry? We testify. You know, we're witnesses. We're witnesses. We're, you know, it's a, it's a martyria. It's a witness. So that's, that's part of it. The results of that witness actually are never, never given for us to, to it's not, not in our hands. It, that's up to God. We are to be faithful witnesses, so we bear testimony and bear witness. And, and, and so then that's going to be on that hand. Now when the, church, when the state adopts more religious stuff, I think then it is closer for us thinking about the, the reformers, for example, in then for Roman Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic states, where it's wanting to impose a certain kind of worship, well then, if it, if that kind of worship is imposed, then we have to say, well, no, we've got to obey God rather than men. So in China, uh, right now, the the state churches have to have a picture of Chairman Mao in the church, as at, like and take down the cross. Well, the underground churches, they say, well, no, we're not putting up a picture of Chairman Mao. We're not, gonna, we're not worshiping Mao. And we're not symbolically putting him there either. So they resist that, even though they're very respectful of the government because they're, you know, as in many other ways, but there's, there's limits in terms of what they do. And so those are things that we all got to kind of develop our muscles for. So I'm not sure if that answers. I, I don't like the idea necessarily of kind of this so-called staying in the lane because that gives the sense, of, oh, well, we, we just bury our head and don't think about politics. The Bible's filled with politics, but it's about us testifying and bearing truth to power. But I do think the individual transformation aspects are going to come from individual Christians. So I'm not going to tell you who to vote for from the pulpit. But I expect that you apply biblical wisdom in sorting out who you ought to vote for. And my guess is, you know, given limited candidates, my guess is probably you're going to vote for one candidate over a different one that's going to fit more with a transformed biblical worldview. Uh, one more quick one, and then, uh, and then who was first? Go ahead, Darren. So the comment is, is there a connection with post-millennialism and Kuyperianism? Well, there's certainly, a, there's certainly a connection, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's exclusively to post-millennialists. There are many Kuyperians who are all mill, 
uh, for example, there's many Kuiperians who are pre-mill. So it's, it's, so it's, I, it's kind of, I, that, that's, a, that's a coincidence. Um, some, of it, some of it's you know, deeply connected, but it isn't necessarily so. So, I, I, but I think, you know, if you're a Christian, yeah, you do hope for the transformation of society by the gospel. That's why we pray for revival. We hope that, but at the same time, we're also trusting that Jesus is going to set everything to right on the last day. I'm going to have to pray and end, but if you've got questions, you can come and talk to me afterwards. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We ask in these next few moments as we worship you in spirit and truth, you'd actually do the more powerful work than just merely changing our outward behavior. You would actually change our hearts. And that from our hearts we would bear fruits, even the fruit of repentance and the fruit of righteousness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. We're going to let everybody in who's been patiently waiting in the foyer as I've been long-winded. Just a few minutes and then we'll get ready for the main service.